tuning in to Bad Radical Radio, an interview series podcast about student of color activists, change makers, and thinkers within NYU and New York at large. I'm your host, Natalie Doggett. Welcome to the second episode of Bad Radical Radio. I'm so glad you're here to join in on the conversation. Last week, I spoke with Brian Ruiz, fellow Gallison student and activist against the prison industrial system. And this week, I'm honored to have with me Dr. Jean Serenario, author of Unsustainable Empire, Alternative Histories of Hawaii Statehood, Assistant Professor of Social and Cultural Analysis, and Steering Committee Member for Native and Indigenous Studies here at NYU. And I have had the privilege of being taught by Professor Serenario this past fall, and I am beyond excited to have him on the show to share his knowledge with you. So, Professor Serenario, if you (laughs) would like to say a little bit more about yourself or say hi. Yeah, hi. Um, Yeah, so I um, grew up in Hawaii, specifically on the island of Maui, and... um, I think it's also important to add that um, our family descends from um, plantation workers. Um, and so on my um, mother's side, um, who are, we're from um, Fukushima, Japan. And Fukushima has um, made um, headlines because of the previous um, nuclear disaster that took place there. Um, anyway, my great-grandfather left there in 1895. And then on my dad's side... Um, uh, that side of the family is from the Philippines. And so we left um, the Philippines in 1919 and arrived to Hawaii. And, and we so we we're essentially four generations in Hawaii. Um, and then had moved around for school and um, for my partner's work and all these other kinds of things. And then well, we ended up in New York City about six years ago. Before we begin our conversation, I would just like for you to join me in acknowledging and honoring the occupied indigenous Lenape land on which we stand. And if you are currently outside of New York City, I encourage you to go to native-land.ca to learn more about the land on which you occupy. All right, so stay tuned for our engaging conversation on capitalist development, indigenous peoples, Hawaii, all that. Okay, so I wanted to start off asking um, why you chose secondary education as a primary outlet to discuss issues of indigeneity, um, epistemology, and decolonization. Yeah, I um, when I first entered college, I was um, going to try to become a music teacher. I really loved music um, and was really focused on um, getting trained in, in music education um, but then I took a ethnic studies course at the University of Hawaii, which is where I did my undergraduate work. And um, ethnic studies courses are, um, I guess, for NYU, it's sort of similar to social and cultural analysis courses. Um, and it um, places into conversation different kinds of histories, so African American history, Native American history, Native Hawaiian history, Asian American history, Latino history, and tries to think about these histories from the ground up, trying to think about the actual communities. Um, and and particularly think about producing knowledge from the site of these communities who are oftentimes not given voice or not being seen as having a capacity to produce knowledge. And I just fell in love with that idea. I just fe- felt like it really gave me the language to describe my experience growing up in Hawaii 
and I was doing and you know if anything we're all learning together but I really loved the opportunity to be in a classroom and to facilitate what I felt was meaningful conversation and to really listen and learn and use the the turn the classroom into a place that I also really wanted to what I learned in that in that um in teaching uh, as an undergraduate was I learned um how to use uh, the classroom and to, how to create a kind of safe space for people to feel um, confident in their thinking and to not feel um, sort of dismissed for whatever 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 political like ideology they're they're um, in the class I was able to take a course with Hanani K Trask as an undergraduate as well and Hanani K Trask is a um, um, sort of fierce Hawaiian feminist um, and really one of the leaders of the of the movement in Hawaii um, that is trying to uh, address the issue of occupation by the United States. And um, after taking her course, I it was just like one of those things where I would like be done with the class and I would want to clap afterwards. Special kind of um, teachers who don't just teach information, but tries to foster leaders, leaders and leadership and um really gave me a, a, a deeper sense as to like what the classroom is capable of doing. So um, you mentioned being involved with the Hawaiian Independent uh, Action Alliance as a graduate student. Mm -hmm. So can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, I'd be happy mm -hmm. to. So um, so the book, Unsustainable Empire, Alternative Histories of Hawaii Statehood, um, uh, was originally my dissertation on the same topic of, of Hawaii's admission as a U.S. state. Um, and I did my um, PhD at the University of Michigan, and that was around 2004. And um, I knew that 2009 would be the 50th anniversary of, of Hawaii's admission as U.S. state. And so my thinking was that if I could spend this time doing research on Hawaii's admission as U.S. state, it would give me the opportunity to place two communities in conversation so like specifically the Asian community in Hawaii and the Native Hawaiian community and try to place their histories um, together as opposed to thinking of them always separately or always you know Asian Americans in relationship to white communities and Native Hawaiian communities in relationship to white communities but what happens when you place those histories together so that we're talking about you know being exploited on the plantation in terms of our labor but also like the ways in which those plantations' very existence relied on the dispossession of Native Hawaiians from land and water. Um, and um, after reading an article that I wrote, and he wanted to meet me, and we met, and I told him what my recent work was on, and he asked me to um, attend these weekly meetings. There I met Lynette Cruz, who was a very longtime uh, organizer, within the Hawaiian community and you know they all wanted to do different kinds of actions to help um, the larger island community to think about you know what the implications of statehood was for Native Hawaiians and how that really um, didn't actually resolve the issue of occupation and colonization but instead simply facilitated it and in fact concealed that colonization under this kind of idea of um, the general narrative of statehood is this idea that um, Hawaii was um, not allowed to become a state because there weren't enough white citizens. 
Hawaii was primarily understood as like a colored territory. It was, there were too many Asians primarily. And um, because of that, the idea is that statehood was blocked, but it's... Um, so the admission of statehood is often narrated as like an anti-racist story. But um, when you take into consideration the fact that Native Hawaiians, um, ha you know, that Hawaii was itself an independent nation in prior to 1893, 1893 is the moment of the U.S.-backed overthrow of the Hawaiian kingdom. Um, and then you take into consideration the long um, movement for statehood, which re really only gave people um, the options of becoming a U.S. state or remaining a U.S. territory. Um, the United Nations by that time had already mandated that um, that these newly decolonizing nations have a vote that would include the options of independence or commonwealth status. None of those options were ever given to Hawaii. And so all of these different kinds of things were all going to sort of come out in 2009. And so Lynette Cruz began organizing what was originally called the Hawaiian uh, Independence Alliance, trying to bring together different groups who are all arguing for the independence of Hawaii from the United States. Um, and under the banner of um, Hawaiian Independence Alliance, but then she wanted to emphasize the fact that we were also action-oriented, so she renamed it the Hawaiian Independence Action Alliance. And we did a lot of grassroots organizing throughout 2008 and 2009. Actually, we began 2008 by um, uh, protesting in front of uh, Barack Obama's vacation home, um, which is actually on a military base. Um, or So we couldn't get on the military base, but we stood right at the gates of it. Um, and we held up signs that said, um, seize, not seated, and no to a cockabill. Because at the time, one of the major issues uh, was the attempt by the Democratic Party in Hawaii and in Congress to gain federal recognition for Native Hawaiians. Mm -hmm. But their particular version of federal recognition did not include any land. So it would have been simply kind of symbolic and, you know, um, it would have also protected Hawaiians from um, any kind of lawsuits that would target. We wanted to try to, one, put independence on the agenda, you know, in terms of like the conversation that was taking place. Um, but we also wanted to like honestly and sincerely create an open dialogue with the, with the community in Hawaii about statehood so you know we did everything that we could in, in every every moment that we could and it was strictly grassroots and so it was like we made signs out of like um bamboo and cloth or you know like we like mm -hmm. and we made um um artist banners and and those kinds of things and we were just fortunate that we had um really accomplished artists a part of our organizing community because the artists were really able to create striking images and um utilize um specific forms um so like uh, um i feel like i'm being long-winded but I'll, I'll just say that like that i think um uh the organizing that we did um whether it was organizing marches or actions at the state capitol um or organizing like tv shows and radio shows um was really um just about entering into the conversation a particular history that is oftentimes not considered when people are talking about statehood in Hawaii. Right, right, yeah. And I was, uh, in the conversation last week, me and Brian were actually talking about art as restorative justice. Mm. So that kind of goes hand in hand. Mm -hmm. um, I wanted to ask about uh, cultural productions that are seemingly uh, autonomous from the state, and you mm -hmm. mentioned that in uh, your book release. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so that made me think of how hula had been appropriated into the tourism industry. Mm-hmm. And um, so I want to ask, do you think that it's up to consumers of the production to dismantle them by disengaging? Or do you think that the dismantling is largely the responsibility of the perpetrators, the creators of those productions? Yeah, that's a great question. I think it's both. On one level, the production of Hawaii... Um, as a kind of um, tourist paradise or sometimes just understood as like this uh, racially harmonious place. Those are ideas that were propagated um, globally um, by the people who were actually involved in overthrowing um, the Hawaiian government. So as an example, you know, the Hawaiian kingdom is overthrown. So Hawaiian kingdom is like, first off, it's like an internationally recognized nation and the treaties with um, all of the major nations traversing the Pacific, so like France, Germany, Italy, um, Japan, the United States. Um, and um, it also had foreign delegates throughout the world. So it was very much a part of the international community. And when it was overthrown in January of 1893, uh, one of the men who was really responsible for um, for orchestrating the overthrow, a man named Lauren Thurston, what he did was he also simultaneously created an exhibit at the Columbian Exposition in Chicago. So the World's Fair, the World's Fairs were um, were sort of like um, giant global um, world communities coming together to celebrate progress and the ability for nations and government to lead um, its citizenry towards like some kind of utopic end. But you know, Robert Rydell also talks about World's Fairs as being intimately involved in motivating or actually quelling revolt, like in stifling any kind of resistance because the the very idea of the World's Fairs was that um, they had to have these World's Fairs consistently because of the numerous rounds of economic depression and, and the ways in which everyday people were living under the conditions of, of poverty, for the, for the most part, especially in the 1890s because there was a major economic depression. And so um, when you look at the creation of the how we think about Hawaii, it went hand in hand with the overthrow of Hawaii, of the Hawaiian government. And Thurston is creating an exhibit and he's, um, you know, um, talking about Hawaii in these very kind of romantic ways while simultaneously positioning Native Hawaiian people as in the past sort of writing their their histories as kind of obituaries, really, which was a very similar kind of thing to what the Columbian Exposition, I mean, it was like trying to celebrate Christopher Columbus, right? So, so it's, I mean, from its start, it's already celebrating a specific narrative that positions indigenous peoples as in a subordinate position to white supremacy, really. And um, so the narrative that the U.S. United States was trying to create in regards to the Columbian Exposition in terms of like the 1890 census declaring that the frontier is closed um, or or declaring that the um, um, Lakota's defeat um, at Wounded Knee is, is itself the last military blow to Native Americans. So this idea of positioning Native Americans as in the past or as like a people who are doomed to extinction went hand-in-hand with the idea of Native Hawaiians as themselves unfit for self-government, which then necessitates a white settler population governing them on their behalf. And 
the important thing to also remember about this moment is that um, Native Hawaiians were actively organizing, and it was in fact um, really the result of Native Hawaiian political organizing that led to white settlers attempting um, to overthrow Hawaii, because um, Hawaiians were actually really effective at or at getting their own. Um, um, representatives into office and so their power was on the wane and so that's really why white settlers wanted to overthrow um, Hawaii with the help of the United States and so you can follow like the image of Hawaii from like the originary moments of trying to include Hawaii as a part of the U.S. frontier um, into kind of like the kind of like Elvis Presley blue Hawaii kind of a uh, imagery um, of like you know Hawaii is like soft and um, it's a paradise. It is a site of leisure. It is a site of pleasure. But it's always important to also tie those thinking that that connection or that affect that that emotion of pleasure to the very lived realities of um, people in Hawaii. So like maybe the hotel might be a site of pleasure for for the tourists, but for the worker um, who is essentially underpaid. Um, you know, there were numerous strikes that took place over the summer for like the the actual workers um, at the at the Sheraton specifically. But um, the workers are underpaid, and for the majority of workers, they oftentimes have to work not just one job, but often two jobs. And you know, for myself, I was a valet um, at a hotel in Waikiki, and the people I work with, you know, one friend had to work sixteen hours, you know, mm. and um, other friends I had no friends who were like relying on. Um, the hotel industry for employment that only had one job. And so given how expensive it is to live in Hawaii, the high cost of living, um, and given the very, you know, the, there's a large amount of jobs that can you can always find employment, but you can't find the kind of job that pays you enough, uh, that pays you a living wage, basically. Mm -hmm. And so the majority of people who um, live in Hawaii or grew up in Hawaii, um, are very much um, attuned to that reality of of living paycheck to paycheck, of living within scarcity, even as you um, sort of see the overabundance of wealth that's being displayed in the hotel industry. Mm -hmm. It's that, that that economy doesn't actually, you know, trickle down to the actual people. Mm -hmm. um, and so the images, I think, have to be thought through in terms of like calling out the tourism industry for painting that kind of lie. And at the same time, um, the consumer who may not have any access to um, an alternative vision of Hawaii, um, you know, I think, you know, we all have to do that kind of work everywhere we go, anywhere we are, you know, um, about the kinds of stories that, that are told about a particular place. But, you know, that's why things like this podcast is important, why education is important, mm -hmm. and actually reaching out to people so that um, they can create um, a kind of critical sensibility about the things they encounter, whether it's Hawaii or whether it's like other kinds of places. I mean, even New York City, right? Like the kind of story mm -hmm. of New York City is like also as a kind of tourist destination um, uh, and kind of seeing a metropolis. But, um, you know, what does that story obscure, like in terms of how, you know, what happens to Manhattan when we remember Manahata? Mm -hmm. When we remember that this is Lanape land, like you, like you began the um, our podcast with the, with the land acknowledgement. Look, and wherever you go, there's another side to the story that's being, that's dominantly told. Mm -hmm. And it's always up to all of us to try to um, think critically about what we're being told and to try to 
um, get access to to the alternative message. Right, right, right. Yeah. And you also mentioned in the same event that Hawaii's, uh, Hawaii's uh, occupation by the U.S. is the result of a weakening U.S. Uh, motor production capitalism rather than uh, a strong uh, motor production capitalism. So thinking about um, the telescope being erected on Mauna mm-hmm. Kea, um, mm-hmm. how do you see that as a sign of, of weakness? Mm-hmm. Um, in settler colonialism and capitalism. Yeah, so, you know, the dominant story about Hawaii's relationship to the United States is like the ways in which we imagine continents relate to archipelagos. Continents are um, sites of power. Continents are um, manifestations of good government. Um, island nations or islands in general are oftentimes imagined as sort of like, you know, Haunani Ketras describes it as like um, light years away in fantasy, mm-hmm. right? Like, um, and I think understanding this idea that islands' relation to continents is one of subordination, but specifically one of dependence, is an is a kind of idea that that really exists within the colonies, uh, within, you know, sites of colonization. Um, But when you look at the actual organizing um, to get Hawaii admitted as a U.S. state, what's actually animating those who are proponents of statehood um, is not this idea of civilizing Hawaii or it's not this idea of incorporating Hawaii into a kind of democracy or, you know, it's actually the fact that... um, in 1893, you have a major economic depression. And because of the economic depression, the, the tariffs uh, that were very cheap for sugar planters in Hawaii, for them to export sugar to the U.S. continent, um, they, were limit, they were actually the, um, uh, they were having to pay more than what they had paid previously as a result of a, of a treaty. But... Um, and so it's actually economic depression on the side of the planters, but for the um, United States themselves, they viewed gaining access to markets in Asia, specifically China, as getting them out of economic depression. And so Hawaii, the Philippines, Guam, Samoa, it was all, they were all seen as stepping stones um, and um, routes towards those markets in China. And if the United States could get access to those markets, it would alleviate a glut of industrial goods on the mm-hmm. continent that would help them to get out of the depression. So basically, it's kind of what some scholars refer to as depression diplomacy. And that happens again in the Great Depression in 1929. There's not a serious movement for statehood until again until the 1930s when, um, again, the competitive edge that sugar planters in Hawaii have uh, towards markets on the U.S. continent are again sort of under threat. And that, again, animates another moment of trying to include Hawaii into the United States. And then again, um, in the 1940s, you can kind of see how um, the transition from agriculture to tourism, they're trying to get um, um, access to large loans in order to profit off, off of tourism. So basically, it's like this kind of continual fail-forward process. Capitalism is not capable of being either sustainable as an economic system or providing 
for the basic necessities um, of its population. And so in order for it to even sort of continue or to, for it to exist, it has to continually um, expand. And, and so that is actually how Hawaii is made to be a part of the United States. It's, it's not like the United States gifting anything to the Hawaiian Islands. It's that the U.S. economy really needed as a part of a kind of foreign policy, the U.S. economy, in order for it to get out of depression, it needed Hawaii in numerous, numerous moments. And so increasingly, I think I've been trying to talk a little bit about that fell forward process as leading us to the moment that we're in, which is climate crisis, mm-hmm. right? And so um, we are now in a moment where um, the very environment that we are living in um, is itself under threat. And it's under threat because of whether we're talking about industrial agricultural models, like transporting your food across thousands of miles, right? Like that's actually 40% of all greenhouse gases is caused by those kinds of things. Mm-hmm. Um, like whether we're talking about rising sea levels or like non-human extinctions, all of these different kinds of things all point to the failures of capitalism um, being environmentally sustainable. And even as like increasingly people are talking about colonizing other planets now, right? So Elon Musk is sort of talking about like colonizing other planets as a resolution to the problems of, mm-hmm. of, of climate crisis. <clears throat> and so that gets us to um, the fact that in regards to movements that are trying to block extractive industries that are contributing to climate crisis. So whether we're talking about Standing Rock as an example, right? Like the um, actual blocking of the construction um, of pipelines that are over native lands, but also over aquifers that could potentially contaminate huge water sources. Um, and then, of course, the fact that the what is being piped is oil, and um, it's you know these kinds of carbon emissions are are intensely increasing climate crisis and so um the 30 meters telescope is itself not blocking oil but it is blocking another kind of extractive industry in the form of astronomy because you can not just only extract resources and potentially contaminate um huge swaths of land you can also extract knowledge and that's what they're trying to do um at Mauna Kea Mauna Kea so for um for those who, who don't know um there's a proposal to create a 30-meter telescope, which is essentially the size of a football stadium, um, on Mauna Kea, which is, um, you know, the the one of the most sacred um, areas in Hawaii, um, and also one of the most sacred areas in the Pacific. They want to place a large telescope uh, on that mountain, and um, the way it ties into this idea of like failing forward is that, um, like, as an example. People are kind of pointing out, like, you know, you're going to establish a 30 meter telescope so that you can um, do research um, in terms of astronomy. But simultaneously, you can't even take care of the very land that that telescope is on. Um, and what's dangerous about that 30 meter telescope is it is resting on Mauna Kea, which is also one of the sources of water for the entire island. So the. Um, Within Mauna Kea is, is actually like frozen glaciers and um, the water that gets um, that melts slowly seeps through the 
lava beds and then eventually ends up in the groundwater sources in the aquifer, which is how the island of Hawaii gets their water. So if you're potentially contaminating um, that water source, um, you're threatening life on the entire island, right? And so it's there's something about the fail forward pattern of both capitalism and settler colonialism that require taking into consideration indigenous movements that seek to work with the environment as opposed to conquering the environment. Mm. Um, and so like a lot of the movements in Hawaii um, in regards to the deoccupation of Hawaii from the United States are not just talking about um, political rights, but are also talking about um, the ways in which Hawaiian economies that are talking about growing and preparing their own food and using the technologies of, of Hawaiians, um, a kind of technology that allowed people to only have to work 15 or 25 hours per month to feed oneself. Um, those kinds of technologies uh, should be implemented and restored so that we have alternatives to a kind of capitalist system that is um, itself um, causing such things as climate crisis or you know, th actually threatening the very conditions of life. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. Also, speaking of uh, settler colonialism, I just wanted to uh, ask you about uh, your personal journey with the complexity and identifying as a person of color and also uh, as a settler in the U.S. So, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so I first came across that term settler when I was an undergraduate at the University of Hawaii. And um, that was when the Amarija Journal at UCLA um, published a special issue called Whose Vision? Asian Settler Colonialism in Hawaii. And it was the first time I'd ever encountered settler colonialism as a theory or settler as a subject position or as a, as a political identity. It was simultaneously when I was working in, as a valet and taking courses with Hanani K um, and other kinds of courses, and it really opened my eyes to the way in which the entire system, economic, political, social system, like was intensely reliant on native dispossession. And so like a, a relying on the process of accumulation by dispossession. And so, you know, for myself, having grown up in Hawaii, you know, um, and being working class and, you know, my mom worked three jobs, my dad worked three jobs. So I never, you know, experienced any kind of like... Um, privilege economically um but when i took the class with hauna nike and then also was working in a valet like as a valet and at at the at the hotels <clears throat> i started to um really understand the difference between native dispossession and the kind of like exploitation that my family mm. in, encountered and like the kind of exploitation that we encounter was, you know, in terms of like being working class exploited in terms of our labor, you know, like in terms of not being being underpaid, essentially. Right. Um, and then, of course, not having access to different kinds of resources, which limits your opportunities and, and these kinds of big questions. But when I took Hanani case class, it, it introduced me to a specific form of dispossession in terms of like Hawaiians having lived, having created a civilization in Hawaii. Um, that allowed for intense biodiversity in the islands, that allowed for the flourishing of the conditions of life in Hawaii. Like, I don't want to paint pre-contact Hawaii in these romantic ways, but I would definitely say that they never created the conditions where life would be threatened the mm -hmm. way that 
settler society has done in Hawaii currently. And the fact that the way in which um, the state of Hawaii comes into existence or even just like the ways that, that um, the economy comes into existence in Hawaii is itself predicated on um, divorcing Hawaiians or disconnecting Hawaiians from land. So not allowing Hawaiians to grow um, huge taro farms um, by stealing the water from those taro farms and re-diverting that water to sugarcane, to grow sugarcane as an example. The elimination of those worlds and the ways in which their language was banned, the ways in which Hawaiians had their nation overthrown by the United States, like you know, living as a native person in a non-native world kind of a thing, right? Like that project of, of settler colonialism and dispossession sort of taught me that there are different kinds of oppression and that for myself, the word settler was useful for me because it allowed me to think simultaneously about the ways in which I can be simultaneously oppressed and oppressive. Um, and it made me think that what we needed to do was we needed to continue to th talk about the things that, you know, our community, my community was talking about in terms of, um, you know, labor exploitation and discrimination while simultaneously working on building a consciousness that allowed us to also support Native Hawaiian movements for self-determination. And it made me think that it's not really like me being generous in terms of like, um, being supportive of Hawaiians, it's actually me recognizing that my interests are directly tied to supporting Hawaiians. That I, it is to my benefit to to support Hawaiians and the resurgence of that world. Um, and so, it's a it's a complicated um, topic. And you know, of course, there are a lot of people in Hawaii who don't want to have anything to do with the term settler. Mm -hmm. And I absolutely respect that. Like it, for me, it is a, a kind of political choice to decide mm -hmm. to identify as a settler. Um, and a lot of people in Hawaii do. Um, but I think the the larger question is less about the word settler than it, than it is about what the word settler is attempting to get us to talk about, which is the ways in which um, our everyday practices can potentially be involved in facilitating the dispossession of native ones. So like for instance like a like for instance I always try to make a point to say that like you know immigration migration is not colonization, right? Like it's not in and of itself colonization. But when you do immigrate to a place where the indigenous peoples um and their land and culture and resources are uh under contestation, the choices that we make um, as non-white, non-native communities can either bolster a colonial system or it can do the the opposite. It can actually bolster a native movement for the occupation. And so the choices that we make really matter. And I'll just end by kind of giving like another kind of example. Like my grandfather worked on the sugar plantation. He um, was a surveyor. So, you know, they would survey the land and they would help to... Um, figure out how to move water from one area of the island to to irrigate the sugar and the water that he was helping to divert was water that was stolen from hawaiian communities 
both in central Maui and west side Maui, and the west um the east of Maui and um I don't like you know he passed away before I could have a a conversation with him about this but um I wonder to what extent he knew that that water was stolen I wonder to what extent um there was an understanding of like what the actual implications were of diverting that water away from Hawaiian communities, the kind of hurt and pain that that cre- created for Hawaiian communities who, you know, their very like way of life was being destroyed through the theft of that water. Mm. So it's not an easy conversation. Um, and I definitely don't want to create a kind of good guy, bad guy kind of dichotomy. Um, but I do want to complicate our understanding of power so that we're not stuck in a kind of binary of people either being oppressed or oppressive. Mm-hmm. I actually think it's more um, important to have honest conversations and to meet people where they are um, by thinking critically about the ways in which you know we can talk about the ways in which power targets us and, and oppresses us and exploits us, but also the ways in which power works through our words, our silences, our ambitions. Um, and and it's really like the kinds of things that we have control over. It's like um, Gracie Boggs, I think, says it best when she says, like, if you want to be in- engaged in a movement and you want to create radical change, begin with yourself. Mm-hmm. You know, begin with, like, challenging your own preconceived ideas and challenging your own actions. And by doing that, um, you begin to become more open to other ways of being and other ways of knowing and other ways of responding to our contemporary moment. Mm -hmm. Mm I'm going to wrap up with uh, just one last question asking Mm -hmm. if you have um, any project you're currently working on or like the classes you're teaching. Yeah. So um, I think the big thing right now that we're, at least in regards to NYU, is that we're... um, always actively trying to hire um, native faculty. Mm-hmm. Um, right now, in terms of native faculty that, that teach native topics, Liz Ellis uh, in history, mm-hmm. who we both know, um, yeah. she uh, is the only um, native faculty. So we're actively trying to hire, and, and we're hoping to get approval to do a hire next year in Native American studies. Um, mm-hmm. But that's still in the in the works. and. We're constantly trying to build the program, so we were successful at building a minor in Native American Indigenous Studies, mm-hmm. um, and that minor is um, very important in terms of like actually allowing students to take topics and um, Native Studies topics and to get credit for for studying Native Studies on their diploma. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, that's some of the things that we've been uh, really trying to do. Um, I'm also involved. Um, with uh, decolonize this place and um, the organizing that we did with the American Museum of Natural History, mm-hmm. and trying to get them to remove um, um, what can only be, desc- be described as racist exhibits, mm-hmm. um, and their portrayal of Native peoples as in the past, um, and so those kinds of conversations have been have been taking place. But um, yeah, there's like always so much work to be done. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think we're all doing the, the work that we can um, with what we have in, in the spaces that we're, we're familiar with. Yeah, thank you so much. For oh, thank coming. you. And I always enjoy 
listening to the knowledge you have to share so that concludes the second episode of bad radical i hope you gain new knowledge from our conversation and you feel encouraged to put that knowledge to work in your own practice thank you so much for joining us on the second episode i'm natalie doggett